Welcome to the Books and Grounds podcast. Thank you for joining us. I'm Heath. And I'm Jared, and we are your co-hosts for Books and Grounds. This is a show where we hash out different short stories, essays, or novels in an effort to encourage reading, thinking, and to dig deeper into stories. All the while, we're drinking coffee. So let's dive right into our first segment here on the first episode of Books and Grounds. Uh, So our first segment is this. We want to just introduce who we are. I will let Jared go first because he is more interesting than I am. And so, Jared, just tell him about yourself, your interests, hobbies, you know, what qualifies you to even be able to do this. So I'm from North Alabama and still live in North Alabama. Um, I've been to a lot of different places. Um, I went to school in Mobile, studied theology. Um, I just finished up a degree in environmental science. Um, I've lived in Yosemite. I've lived in Yellowstone. I've hiked the Appalachian Trail. I've written a book about the Appalachian Trail, and I've also written a book, a uh, science fiction book. You're not going to give them the name of those? Yeah, I guess I could. You try not to, you try not to shameless plug this? So, shameless plug, Immersion in an American Landscape is the Appalachian Trail book, and Josiah the Reformer is a science fiction book. You can find both of those books at jaredwcarter.com. If you go there, there's a little tab that says store. You can go click on those. I just uh, let someone borrow Immersion yesterday. Um Uncle Eric, who's up here at the church working on stuff, uh, has always wanted to do the Appalachian Trail, like is dying to do it, wants to walk it with his daughter. Uh, So I let him take it home with him to read it. And he said he's going to buy another copy um, for her. Awesome. Also, uh, a shameless plug for somebody else, uh, Bellum Magazine, bellumcreative.com, uh, writes a really good magazine, incorporates short stories and poetry and photo essays. It's a really well done magazine, too. Uh, Jared let me look at that at his house, uh, and I got to read some of his short stories. And by the way, we're doing a top five author thing later, and I'm trying to be um, non-biased, so I didn't put Jared in it, but Jared is in my top five because he's number one. Uh, so I'm, I'm in my top five, too. Is that? <laughs> That's a little narcissistic. Uh, but basically, I'm doing two through uh, six or seven. Uh, so, yeah, so it's very well done. Very good short stories. Um, anything else? Uh, nope, it's your turn. It's my turn. Well, I'm Heath. I am a pastor in a pastor in Noonan, Georgia, but I live in a tiny little town called Rootville. Um Originally born in Mississippi and then raised in Talladega, Alabama. I have not lived at Yellowstone or Yosemite. Um, In fact, I've never been to those places. Uh, I have been to the Grand Canyon, but that's about the extent of it. And most of the time I was wondering when lunch was going to happen. But uh, I am a musician. Uh, I've been in a few bands. the most notable bands that I was in, one was had a, t- a terrible name, if we're being perfectly honest. Uh, now they go by Running After Rockets, the ones who still play together, and they're, they're great. Um, we were called Oddly Normal. Horrible, horrible name, and I'm going to go ahead and apologize for that. But um, I was also in another band called the Underhill Family Orchestra, and they're still uh, touring and, I mean, doing doing really good things. I think they've been signed to a label uh i don't want to i don't want to mislabel them it's hard to label them anyway but i i do i love their stuff um and underhill has my goodness their live show is far better than their recorded show for music well have you heard have you heard their new one 
I haven't. I guess. I oh haven't. my word! So buddy. I might need to take that back. But just from experience and going to their shows, they're awesome. They're excellent, and they're on Skate Mountain Records, is what it's called. Um, so if you want to check them out, we will shameless plug people all day, uh, especially people that we support what they're doing. Do we need a um, limit of shameless plugs? Because I feel like we're already up to what three or four, five. This man, this is our show. We can do what we want. If people don't like it, then then they can keep listening, uh, because I don't want to go ahead and run people off. <laughs> well, let me find out. I want to get their website. You can go to skatemountainrecords.com, and they're actually on like the front of Skate Mountain's uh, website right now. Uh, their website is weareunderheel.com. So if you if you're looking for what what would you call it? It's just I call it roots rock because it's so southern. Um, it is southern, but it's, it's distinctly also, southern, but it's not country. No, it's not, and, and it's not Skinnered. It's <laughs> you know what no, I mean. It, it's the like, but it's kind of punk. It's kind of a little I don't bit know. rockabilly ish. Yeah, um, rockabilly would be a good term, I guess. I don't really know how but, to label. Very good. Um, but getting back to our original point, I am a musician. Um, I do occasionally. Uh, release music. I, I, my philosophy on that is I just release music when I feel like it. Um, and, and I do it for me. I don't do it for anything else. And it's usually free on noise trade. Um, in fact, on noise trade, if you look up clear river drifters, you will find a song written by the verses are written by Jared. Um, and it's a fun one, but so that's our intros. Um, well, okay. No, no, no. We forgot something. You are about to experience something in your life that's amazing. What is it? A baby boy. A baby boy. I have no idea what that's going to feel like. I am a father to three girls. Um, I need a boy desperately. Your son will be spoiled. He will be. Um, but, yep, yeah, he is due in June. All right, so that's us. Um, and now we want to get into a different segment of the show, on our top fives. Um, and so what this is, is we're talking about our top five books and our top five authors. And I'm going to let Jared go first with authors and then I'll come in and then you go first with books as well. Cause, uh, he, full disclosure, Jared reads a lot. He, he knows a lot about literature. I dabble at best. I dabble at best. And so I, I do love to read. Most of my reading is, um, this sounds bad, but it's forced reading because I'm in seminary. Uh, and so I'm looking forward to December when I graduate and can read what I want to read. Uh, but Jared, give us your top five authors. Okay, so I think we might have some repeats, or at least one repeat. Um, C.S. Lewis, um, Ray Bradbury, J.K. Rowling, Wendell Berry, and Robert Penn Warren. I didn't even think about J.K. Rowling. Mm. How can you not? You just messed up my list. Ah, well, she's in there. Okay, Go ahead. So, so honorable mentions, Roll Doll, which my my phone c- corrected to Ronald Doll, but <laughs> Ronald Doll, Roll Doll, John Irving, and Wallace Stegner. John Irving, I've never heard of. Who is that? John Irving is uh, a prayer for Owen Meany. Um, okay. Cider House Rolls. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I was in Goodwill yesterday trying to pick up these kind of classics. Uh, I picked up Anna Karenina. Yeah. Yeah, I picked up Anna Karenina, but I did see Cider House Rules right beside it. Uh, so that's one I need to pick up. Yeah, it's good. I would pr- I would recommend A Prayer for Owen Meany above all of his other works. Gotcha. A Prayer for Owen Meany. All right, cool. Um, so my top five, I told Jared beforehand, so I'm not cheating. I have a tie for fifth 
really sixth because Jared's number one. Uh, but sixth is a tie between, and understand when we say top authors, we're not saying these are the top five best authors. They're the top five favorite of our own. Um, so when I speak of whoever's writing, I'm not saying they're the best writer in the world. There's just something about their stories that gets me. Right. And, and while there might be some repeat over top writers and top books, some of my top books aren't by my favorite writers because some books mm-hmm. have more meaning and are better. But as True. far as the body of work goes. And I may actually have more than one book by the same author. Right. Uh, in my top five. But my number five is a tie between Gary Paulson, who wrote Hatchet and what's it called? The River? Yeah. And, and Brian's, Brian's, Winter. Brian's Winter. He uh, did another one. I, like- I almost said Brian's Song, but that's that movie where the football player has cancer. The I Love You, Brian Piccolo. Oh, Have you yeah. ever seen that movie? Yeah. So that's, that's not one of them. Um, so ignore that. But he wrote Hatchet. Um, that is so important to me because that was probably the first book that ever kept my attention when I was growing up. And we will do that book at some point. Oh, absolutely. In show pretty soon, probably. I hope it's next. Um, but yes, Hatchet is is a very important book to me. Um, it's, I mean, it's simple. It's a kid's book. They, they get kids to read it. I read it in fifth grade, um, and it's still one of my favorite books ever written. So, so Hatchet, uh, Gary Paulson. Uh, that's not going to be in my top five books, but Paulson is in my top five of authors, and he's tied with Willie Morris. Uh, Willie Morris was a writer from Mississippi. Um, he wrote a book called Good Old Boy, which he's written several, and it's and I have a propensity toward that Southern style of writing, mostly because I I mean I was born in Mississippi and raised in Alabama and live in Georgia. I'm about as Southern as you can get when it comes to living in different areas, and I've lived in Mobile. Um, which mobiles its own thing. But Willie Morris died. I think he died in like 99, a couple days before my birthday. Um, But he was like born in Jackson, but raised in Yazoo city, Mississippi, which he may pronounce Yazoo, but uh, it's in the Delta, which if you know anything about Mississippi, the Delta is its own world. Um, But the book that, that really did it for me with that was a, was a book called good old boy, um, a Delta boyhood which is so interesting, um, but it resonated a lot with me growing up in that area of Mississippi. Um, and then they turned it into a movie called Good Old Boy, which was renamed The River Pirates. And then they remade that movie into the movie My Dog Skip, um, which I'm not going to give my comments on the movie My Dog Skip because this is a um, a positive show we don't want to have a lot of negativity frankie munez um can we make him like an enemy of the show yes just for fun official enemy of the show (laughs) frankie Frankie munez Munez. (laughs) you are the enemy um but yeah so he he writes a lot like a um almost like a john grisham in his older stuff you know what i'm saying the more mature stuff but that one was so simple uh, that he became one of my favorites and then before he died i had an opportunity to meet him and in my book a uh, good old boy, a Delta boyhood. You flip open the cover and it says to Heath, a mighty good old boy, Willie Morris. So there's a lot of um, 
sentimental value tied to that. That's awesome. I got, um, I went to a Southern Riders Conference uh, a couple months ago, and I got uh, Wendell Berry's new book uh, signed, and I actually got it signed. This is before we knew we were going to have a boy. By Wendell it. Berry, right? By Wendell Berry. Okay, signed yes. by Wendell Berry. <laughs> Not some guy named Just John. Just random. <laughs> Hey, Kenneth, come sign my book. <laughs> but I had him sign it as to Baby Carter. So that'll oh, be nice. kind of like a gift in the future for Jackson. And he's going to hate reading. Probably, uh, I'm just kidding. Probably. I'm just, well, with, with his mother and his father, he might. Um, knowing both of you, I picked up at Goodwill, I picked up a complete works of William Shakespeare. And I had it in my hand. I was like, Lauren would be so proud. And I set it back on the shelf and I left without it. <laughs> have, have you seen... <laughs> Have you seen in, in Lifeway, there's autographed versions of the Bible? Oh, yes. Just, okay, moving on. Number four. Uh, my number four would probably be Nathaniel Hawthorne. Is this four or three? This is four. That was tie for five. Oh, gotcha. So four would be Nathaniel Hawthorne. I really like Scarlet Letter. I really like The House of Seven Gables. Um, so I, I like his writing. Three would be... Mm. I like Poe, um, and I think Poe because I was in such an awkward phase in my early years of high school that I was that kid curled in a corner reading Edgar Allan Poe while everybody looked at me like I might murder them. <laughs> uh, and so <laughs> uh, I love the short stories. Definitely, you know, um, my favorite one of all of them is the the Cask of Amontillado is my favorite one, uh, and Murderers in the Rue Morgue. Those are just just good short stories, and the, I like those. The cast might be my favorite, too. It's just so good. Did you know he has science fiction short stories? And they're way crazy. I mean... What are they called? It, um, it, I just have the book, and it says the science fiction short stories of Edgar Allan Poe. And they're I'm going to have to get a hold of that. Yeah. I'll get that, then. So, what number was that? That was three? Yes. Okay, two would be C.S. Lewis. Um... Chronicles of Narnia is great. I have not finished the Space Trilogy, but I did read the first one, which is Out of Silent... No, not Out of Silent... Is it Out of yes, Silent Planet? Out of Silent Planet. It's out of one. Silent Planet. So fun to read. Uh, and then, of course, as a theology student, um, C.S. Lewis has many works that are apologetics in nature. Uh, and so he's a very good writer. And as one who is interested in just human emotion... You know, if you read books like Surprised by Joy or A Grief Observed, um, you know, these are these are books that that are very impactful. I will say there are times that Lewis um, can chase a rabbit trail for a little bit. Um, So if you're expecting if you've never read C.S. Lewis for some reason and you're coming into it based on our recommendation, understand that he does rabbit trail it a good bit. but he always seems to bring it around to make it be uh, relevant to what he's saying. And then my first one uh, is actually, I mean, I read the books years ago and never thought of them much, but Tolkien. My goodness, I love J.R.R. Tolkien. Um, I've recently joined Middle Earth Groups on Facebook. Um, In fact, if you look at my personal Twitter it says that I'm a citizen of Middle Earth, <laughs> so I'm nerding out a little bit. Uh, but the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings series are excellent. But then I also have the other books. Um, uh, there's a few of them. 
I need to get the second book to the the Lost Tales. Right. See, I almost put Tolkien in my list, but my reasoning behind not is because I don't think I'll ever read everything he's written. So I'll read anything by C.S. Lewis, no matter what. I'll mm-hmm. read anything by J.K. Rowling, even her new stuff like The Casual Vacancy. Yeah. I will read, you know, all my other top authors, all their stuff. He gets so down into the details, Tolkien does, in he histories does. and and background tales that I don't think I'll ever touch just because I, I love the Lord of the Rings. So if they came out with an abridged version. Possibly, yeah. That took out the unnecessary. Uh, and I think what that is, basically, is he's just building his own world. He is, he is know, a world builder in his literature. Yeah, um, wasn't he like, a, what was his, his expertise was like medieval language or something right. something weird so he was no that was that was c.s lewis i get was confused that sometimes well c.s lewis i was about to say i can't think of the word whatever it is that you study languages is that linguistics well no i take it back tolkien was a linguistic because c.s <laughs> no what what made me think it was c.s lewis c.s lewis based ransom off of some parts of tolkien yeah so ransom his main character in the space trilogy Oh, I just looked this up. So, Tolkien. Get this. He specialized in English philology? philology? That's it. That's philology. Yeah. In 1915, he graduated with a specialization in Old Norse. Yeah. That is a specialized so area. He was, uh, and I think it's a weird word, he was a philologist. Yeah, philologist. Philologist. It sounds like I'm messing up. <laughs> Uh, but he also taught in heroic verse, the history of English, Old English, Middle English, uh, Germanic philology, Gothic, Old Icelandic, and Medieval Welsh. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, and, and I think part of the thing that I admire so much is he built his own language. He builds own languages. Like, he builds these, these Elvish languages and these Orc languages and all this stuff, and he calls it Mountain Doom. Now, we have our own language. Um just to drive your wife insane. My wife hates it. Yeah, but that is nowhere near the level. Real quick, our language <laughs> consists of replacing every single vowel with an ooh sound. With ooh. So, Jewed Kuda. Uh, <laughs> that sounded weird. Whoops. Hooth Wooten. Hooth Wooten. I think you all have figured out the language. Uh, way to go. All right, so let's move on now to the, the two books we want to read. What are two books you're wanting to read? Two books I want to read. So one of them is um, a, a Confederate of Dunces. It's one of the, like the, the main or primary Southern literature books. So I have an old, uh, or not old, uh, a professor from Mobile who was hardcore. He, he taught Southern literature, and he is Southern literature. Like, that's just his thing. And so he or carried with them all the time three books and i read two of them but one of them is a confederate of dunces and that's next on my list so another one another one is um called one man's meat it's a (laughs) (laughs) it's a bad title of the book but (laughs) but family friendly the, the guy behind well well the guy behind Charlotte's Webb, who wrote Charlotte's Webb and who wrote Stuart Little, yeah, has, yeah. has a collection of essays. And this is One Man's Meat by E.B. White. E.B. White. All right. 
My gosh. Thank you, E.B. White, for that title. Um, so then mine, again, I'm cheating. Uh, because can a trilogy count as one book, or does that need to count as three? Uh, we can count it as one. All right. So Greg Isles has the Natchez Burning trilogy. Uh, and so the books that are in that is Natchez Burning, uh, another book called The Bone Tree, and another one called Mississippi Blood. Uh, and I'm wanting to read that, one, because I am I was born in Natchez, uh, and Greg lives in Natchez. Um, and so I, I, that right there is just a connection enough for me. Uh, but also, he's married to a girl that I grew up with. Um, he doesn't put her name a lot on anything, so I'm, I'm also not going to put the name up. But particularly Natchez Burning is the one that I want to read the most. Um, because, I mean, it's... It's about a, a family doctor that's been accused of of murder, but this is in the '60s, and so it has to do with race relations and things like that. So it's it's one of those ones I think would be uh, just an interesting read. And then I'm trying to remember what was the name of the book we talked about the other day about coffee and a civil war. Do you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, I remember what you're talking about. Oh, I don't remember what it's I called. I just can't remember. Hold on. I'm going to look it up because um, uh, is it the Monk of Mocha? That's not it, is it? I don't think that's it. Yes, that's it. Okay, so the Monk of Mocha. um, And it says it's the story of a Yemeni American man raised in San Francisco who dreams of resurrecting the ancient art of uh, Yemeni coffee, but finds himself trapped in their civil war. And so he's going over there to learn how to make that specific style of coffee and then gets trapped in their civil war. And this was brought to my attention by uh, my friend Brian. And now I just want to read it. So And, the and monk, that's Dave, Dave Eggers, right? Dave um, Eggers. Uh-huh. I don't know. I don't really know anything else he's written. So I, I've heard really good things about him. So one of the things that you might be familiar with, at least by name, is a heartbreaking work of staggering genius. That sounds familiar. Not the Amberlin song, but. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Amberlin. All right. Back to that. Uh, so, yes, um, the Monk of Mocha and Dave Eggers. Um, but I am looking forward to reading that one. Not to mention it has one of the coolest covers. I've ever seen. It's just a really cool red, bright cover. But all right, we need to transition now to our main purpose for today is talking about the most dangerous game. Uh, What we're doing is we've picked out a short story or a novel or something together and said, let's read that. Let's save what we're really talking about for the actual podcast, even though that didn't quite work out this time uh, because we've had several conversations already about this uh but let's let's talk about the most dangerous game um you want to give any information about who it's written by or anything sure yeah so i first read this in ninth grade and it's one of those that always sticks with you and i think that's kind of what how we choose the books and and novels and short stories that we do is is a stick with you. Um, so this one is Richard Connell and he wrote it in 1924. Um, and do you want me to give the characters and plot? Sure, sure, sure. Sure. Let's go ahead and do a full intro on it. Um, 
basically it's two main characters so rainsford who's this you know american new york guy who is a trophy hunter and so we have also uh, general zaroff so he's this guy he's a Cossack general um and he is super rich um and we'll get more into him but he is the villain and rainsford your antagonist so the plot is that Rainsford, uh, the antagonist, is on his way to Brazil to hunt jaguars. Um, but while he's on board, um, he falls overboard and manages to swim to a nearby island. And this is where you meet General Zaroff on this island, who is the owner of this island and has this mansion on this island. And um, the it becomes this manhunter... Uh, event where General Zaroff um, meets Rainsford and, and knows of Rainsford and is thrilled to have such a high esteemed hunter on his island and then he begins the most dangerous game. Yeah, so um, a lot of different themes in this one. Uh, I really liked it. Um, now this story has a special place for Jared and I as well because uh when Netflix first came out, they would have your lower budget uh, movies, and I'm I, I was shocked to find out that that Connell actually helped write the movie. Um, but we tried to watch this movie. It was released in the 30s. Let's just say, uh, if you want to know anything about this book, do not watch the movie. The do movie not. the movie was terrible. Um, I mean, there was a guy swimming in water, and it kept having cuts to a shark in the water, and so it implies the shark bites the man, but the man doesn't scream like in Jaws. He grips his chest and says, oh, it got me. Uh, as, so, he, as he uh, just kind of slowly sinks into the slowly water. Slowly <laughs> sinks, because that's what sharks do. They run by and they shoot you, uh, and then they swim away. So do not watch the movie. Read the book or the short story. It's only like, what, 30 pages? Something like that? Yeah, oh, it's, it, uh, yeah I don't think it's, it's even not that long it's at pretty all. short. Uh, one of the things that I found interesting, my mom asked me the other day when she was talking about my niece writing a paper, said... Whenever you write anything, don't you have to have an introduction? Uh, so if you read this book, the answer to that question is no, because it doesn't give you any introduction of what's going on. Right. It just says off there to the right somewhere. You know, so just that's, mid-conversation. That's what, find, that's what you find with short stories, because they are so short yep. that they begin in the middle of something. Yeah. And so uh, with this one. The the interesting things there's some quotes that that tell you what's coming up, um, much like Tolkien. Tolkien's going to tell you what's coming up in his writing. Connell tells you what's coming up uh, in in shadows, if you will. He gives you a type of what's about to happen. Um, so one of the quotes that I underline, and if you underline any of them, let me know. And uh, it, so they're talking about that this that hunting is the best sport in the world. He says for the hunter, not for the jaguar. And then uh, Rainsford uh, says, "Don't talk right, Whitney. You're a big game hunter, not a philosopher. Who cares how a jaguar feels?" So that's telling you about what's coming up. That's laying out the um, the mindset behind the story. And I think we get into social Darwinism, um, which basically is that. Um, in the competitive arena of life, 
the uh, fittest rise to the top. Uh, and so that is all through this, um, this story of the uh, only the strong survive, dog eat dog kind of world going on. Uh, and so if you if you know anything about social Darwinism, that's all throughout this. Right. Um, and Rainsford and it even says quote. it there where it says the world is made up of two classes. You stole my line. That's oh, is that sorry? Say. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah, but Rainsford says there's two classes: the hunter and the huntee. Yes, and that is social Darwinism. Uh, but he, right before that, he says this hot weather is making you soft, Whitney. Be a realist. Be a realist. Uh, so what do you think might be intended in that little bitty short statement? Telling him to be a realist. Well, I think it's, I don't know, the, the, the hunter mindset um, that that there's humans who who are superior to everything and anything they do is is for their benefit i guess or mm-hmm. or should be for their benefit yeah and and i guess maybe there's just in that be a realist there's no room for empathy of any other creature that's what I was getting at. So do you think that this is like naturalism gone wild? Yeah, Where, I think it can be. Or, or, or not naturalism per se, reason gone wild. Yeah. Um, that everything is like mere fact. There is no gray. Either you live or you die. There's no meaning in between it. So there's almost like a nihilist kind of thing or nihilist, however you pronounce that, going in there. But... Uh, I think the implications of being a realist here means separate yourself from emotion. Right. Because this is how the world is. Um, So in some ways, he's representing social Darwinism as a pessimistic view. Uh, As a, you know, if you don't make it, you're just going to die. And that's and then it's just all over at that point, and we move on, and we'll see that in a minute. And and I think uh, Richard Connell in in this first conversation with Whitney, who's really not a main character, but he's setting it up that we identify kind of what the correct philosophy is of this short story, which is kind of Whitney's yes. philosophy. Yes. Um. And so. I think Connell's not pushing social Darwinism. I think right. he's given a critique of it. Um, and one thing he always does in this one uh, is puts the social Darwinist in a light of uh, arrogance, if you will. So where he says the world is made up of two classes, the hunters and the hunties, the social Darwinist in, in Connell's mind always assumes they're of the hunting class. Yeah. You don't find a social Darwinist saying, I'm one of the hunties. To go back to to Richard Connell, he fought in World War I, so he saw firsthand what it means for for human beings to be hunters and and for human beings to be hunted. Well, I was watching uh, The War by Ken Burns, not the Civil War one, the war, World War II, um, and, and he was talking to the soldiers, and one of the things they said was, um, when you're about to get into a battle, you have all these nerves and emotions and 
Uh, you're wanting to cry, and some men cried out for their mothers and stuff like that. But then once the shooting started, they forget all that. And all it is is take out your enemy. And so you're not thinking about that man has a child or a wife or a mother. You know, it's just shoot, shoot to kill. And and you see, for, for whatever reason, you see a lot of great literature come from people who have been through war. Mm-hmm. I mean, we mentioned, you know, authors already, C.S. Lewis and and Tolkien, um, but you also have, like, your Ernest Hemingway, who've, who've lived through war, who fought in war, and their literature reflects it. it. It may not be talking specifically about war, but it really reflects it. Well, I think any time somebody is writing, their experience is going to come out in it. Uh, so something they've lived through or, or, you know, something they've thought about a great deal, that's going to come out in their writing, whether that's the point of their book or not. Um, one of the funniest things you ever did in Josiah the Reformer to me was describe his clothing. Because you described your own clothing, uh, which is I hilarious. Khakis um, and slippers and khakis whatever. And, was and, he wearing flannel? <laughs> yeah, yeah, flannel <laughs> shirt. Uh, and so you just described your style. And, you know, that's just one of those things. I think when people write, they, they put a piece of themselves in what they're writing. Right. Uh, and, so and, and if you've I, been through like, war, that's a big piece, right? Yeah. So Ernest Hemingway says, write what you know. I mean, and, and he does Exactly. That. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what he's doing here. Um, and then he gives some foreshadowing like a good short story writer does. He's what I felt was a mental chill, uh, sort of sudden dread. He's talking about the island. Um, and so you have this uh, foreshadowing of what's coming. But then later he says this. He says, um one superstitious sailor can taint the whole ship's company with his fear. And then the reply is maybe, but sometimes I think sailors have an extra sense that tells them when they're in danger. Uh, and I think what this is, is, uh, an animalistic sense that's compatible with that, that almost social Darwinism type of view of that at our core, at our essence, uh, many people view humans as just animals that are elevated. And that they have this sense that something's coming, this dread. Like like a dog before a storm kind of thing. Yes. Like, um, my wife had a dog that got struck by lightning one time, and then every time it would get cloudy, he'd run into the garage. Um, so, that, yeah, exactly. There's an animalistic sense there. Um, did you have anything on Cossacks at all? Um, we... We can get to that, I guess, when we meet. Do you want to go ahead and meet the Zaroff and Ivan? Because they are. Oh, I'm sorry, Cossacks. I'm going to have to edit that right there because okay, sure. I don't know what you just said. <laughs> it froze on me. Uh, um, where were we? Well, I'll go to this. Okay. So, in the story, he does not hide that the general is a Cossack. General Zaroff is a Cossack. Um, he even describes the uniform. He's dressed in a uniform, a black uniform trimmed with gray. I don't even know how to pronounce that word. Um, a strachan? But that's a hat. It's one of those cool Russian hats. Okay. Um, so uh, basically, he's a Cossack. And if I could summarize the Cossack story very, very shortly, um, 
and leaving out a lot of details. And there's much more, but the Cossacks were really feared. Um, in World War One, they were a very strong group of soldiers. Um, but then they were embarrassed. They got shamed by the Red Russians uh, and were driven away from where they lived and were essentially pushed out and forced to move, um, which is how Zaroff came to this island. He was running away from the conflict that had just taken place. Um, and so uh, he still had this view of being this hunter when in reality he was the one who was kicked out of uh, kicked out of somewhere and moved to an island so he moved to a place where he gets to be at the top again at the top of the food chain right um so i think it's very interesting i think zaroff is pretty much crazy he is crazy yeah and and i think the isolation makes it worse yeah because he's he's forced himself to believe that he is the top he's he's literally the top he has a mansion on the top of an island and he's the only saint. Well, not saint. He's the only person. <laughs> he's not saying. He's not saying. But he's the only only occupant of this island besides his servant. Yeah, and that's it exactly. In which we see later that his servant, he doesn't have any emotion toward Ivan, his servant. Um, later in the book, Ivan gets killed, and it's like no dread for Ivan dying, except that. He's not useful anymore. I can't. I now got to find another servant. You know, right, and so right. it's it's interesting. But when we get to the meat of the story, I thought the dinner exchange was so good. Where they're talking about like the Cape Buffalo is the most dangerous right. of all. Yes. You know, um, and then Zaroff with the creepy smile says, no, you're wrong. The Cape Buffalo is not the most dangerous game. Uh, and then I like it says he sipped his wine. So it's like he's way too calm about this. Uh, he sips his wine and, and here uh, here in my preserve on this island, he said in the same slow tone. So he's just chilling out. I hunt more dangerous game. Right. Now, I love this build up right here. Yes. Because they've been they've been talking about like. What have you hunted? What have I hunted? You know. Yeah, and um, and he had heard of Rainsford. He had read his book. Right. So, Rainsford's this big time trophy hunter, and he's well known. He wrote you know books on it, and Zaroff just reads everything about hunting. Hunting is his life, so he just reads yeah. hunting stuff. And, and so, what you have here is a battle of alpha males. You have Zaroff. You, you have yeah. Zaroff killing off all these people who are not experienced. He says that they go running through the woods. They don't know what to do. But now he has found the one guy who could stand up to him, and he right. wants and that so challenge. At the point uh, they're talking he wants about to prove the Cape Buffalo. Yeah, he wants to prove that, that he is the alpha male against this man who he respects. Because we can't forget that right. he respects he, Rainsford. He does, he does respect him very much. But at the point we're talking about the Buffalo, you don't know what Zaroff is talking about when, when he's talking Mm-mm. about he has. Because they asked, is the it Tigers? Game. I remember reading this for the first time and thinking, like, has he bred some kind of monster? You know what I mean? Like, like yeah. is it Jurassic Park? Like, Pretty much. <laughs> is there velociraptors going to come running out of yeah. the woods? Uh, but no, you know, I love these. What, what have you imported, General Tigers? And the general smiled. 
How sadistic is this? But he says, "No, hunting tigers ceased to be uh, ceased to interest me some years ago." Uh, and then he pulls out a long black cigarette with a silver tip <laughs> and starts smoking. I love that he it, he gave uh, that information. Right. It's a long black everything's, cigarette. Everything's just being downplayed. I think he's smoking a clove cigarette, by the way, because <laughs> he said it smells like incense. Um. But he's just chilling, you know. He he is so calm about it. We could get into the uh, the mentalities of serial killers and all that stuff, and I think it would be pretty reflective. Um, but where the general says he, he fills the glasses, and he says, "God makes some men poets, some he makes kings, some beggars. Me, he made a hunter. My hand was made for the trigger." My father said. Uh, he was a very rich man with a quarter of a million acres in Crimea, and he was an ardent sportsman. So he's talking about how this isn't just how he's nurtured. This is his nature. Right. I was born a hunter. I find it interesting. He said that God made him a hunter since right. we're talking about social Darwinism. But um, and then he led the command of the Cossack cavalry, which we know um they were so feared because they were so fierce. Uh, they did not see people as people. They saw them as targets, as game, and wiped them out. Um, and and that does not even excuses, but it, it, in his mind, it promotes his cause to hunt. Exactly. Right? If, if it's God, if it's God ordained, it's the will of God. Yeah. Right. What is the movie where they start yelling "God wills it"? I can't remember what it is. There's some movie where some people are on an evil journey and they keep going, God wills it, and then they kill him. Mm. Uh, that's what's going on here. He's he's trying to justify his actions by calling it God's will, um, which a lot of serial killers do. Yeah, God wanted true. me to kill him. Uh, I was told by an angel to kill him, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but I find it funny. He says, after that debacle in Russia, and you go on down, it says, hunting was beginning to bore me. So he mentions the debacle in Russia. He's not trying to hide right. that, but he was he was hunting all these different things. Uh, but he says, hunting's beginning to bore me, and hunting, remember, had been my life. And he had heard in America that businessmen often go to pieces when they give up the business that has been their life. And so he's not wanting to give up what he does. But another thing that I found interesting is in the 20s, the big game hunting as a social status was big. So if you watch like Tarzan, the cartoon from mm-hmm. Disney, you have that guy that's walking around with the yellow clothes on and the gun. He just wants to shoot this white gorilla because it's it's a social right. and, thing. And you're, you're in the the time period of of Teddy Roosevelt. Yes, yes, yes. You know, walks awfully, carry a big stick, a lot of hunting, uh, and so they're wanting to do uh, that as just a social status thing. And so um, Rainsford does that as well. This is the thing we have to remember. Rainsford doesn't take it as far as Zaroff, but he's a hunter as well, and he's riding on a yacht to get there. Right. And, um, and uh, it's it's Zaroff and, and Rainsford. It's a trophy hunting is a, a wealthy game. Yes. I mean, you, you can't be a trophy hunter unless you're very affluent. And so kind of along that, that God-ordained train of thought, if you're ordained to be wealthy you're also ordained to be a trophy hunter if you're male at that time period yeah 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 
But then one of the things also, it has the, the best quote of the whole book. I don't know if you think this is the best quote in there. There is no greater bore than perfection. Yeah. I actually heard that quote yesterday on a podcast from Alton Brown. So a Food Network type podcast. And he goes, there's nothing more boring than perfection. And I was like, ah, that's from that's from Most Dangerous Game. Uh, and so that quote, I find amazing. It, um, is it true? Is it? Uh, I'll give this example. So my sister, Heather, um, I don't think she'll listen, so I could say this. Pretty much... Um, my teachers viewed her as the epitome of perfection. She was straight 100 student, uh, never got in any kind of trouble whatsoever. And so I got into 12th grade lit class and my teacher said, you're not like your sister, are you? <laughs> I said, no. And she said, shame. It's a shame. <laughs> but I got in, in, in 10th grade, I went to a literature class with a guy named uh, Mr. Guthrie who I hope will listen to this, but Mr. Guthrie uh, looked at me one day and he goes, you're not like your sister, are you? And I said, no. He said, good. I like personality. Um, so uh, so maybe, maybe in some ways, maybe in some ways perfection is boring. You know, like, uh, I don't know. But then again, there is a difference between excellence and perfection. Right. So trying to do something excellently should not be boring, but but do you think perfection is boring? I think it may be in the sense that that he means it. Like so you you see all these athletes going to different sports. So I think yes, I think at some point when you're too good at something and it doesn't present a challenge anymore, then you do move on to something else. Yeah, well that's what he said. No animal had a chance with him anymore. It was it was a mathematical certainty that he was going to get the animal, you know. And so, uh, I think okay. Here's another example. I'll use hunting, not real hunting. I'm not an outdoorsman. Uh, I do live on a farm that has woods, but I have played Deer Hunter Five on the computer. Um, and so, in Deer Hunter Five, you can put in a code that makes the deer pop up in front of you. And I'd shoot the big bucks and all that stuff. But guess what? It got really boring. Once you put the code in. Right. And so does so does Def Jam. Uh, yeah. when, <laughs> fight for New York. A fight for New York. When, yeah. when you just crank up the stats and you, you beat people to death. Well, it's when you gain the stats. Now, see, you building yeah. up to the stats was very fun to watch That's and fun, very fun to play. But, but after that, once you have 100% in everything or whatever it is, then it's, it's easy. Exactly. It got boring and we stopped playing it. Um, same thing, like putting cheat codes in video games makes it worse. Um, so I think in that way, yeah, perfection can be pretty boring. Um, like when you put codes in for for Tony Hawk, and you can yeah, you can you moon can tri- gravity you can for for hours <laughs> without falling because you can put it where you can't even fall <laughs> off your skateboard. Um, yeah, so it does get very boring, and, and Jared's taking shots at but <laughs> or in. Uh, football video games if you delete or turn off penalties um yes and you just sit there (laughs) (laughs) running on the line the quarterback before even (laughs) because there's no offsides 
Uh, yeah. So yeah, perfection is is boring in some ways. There's no challenge anymore. Um, and I love that. His, At the same time, yeah. Go ahead. At the same time, I, realistically, like so, this is a piece of fiction. So he can reach perfection in some sense. Mm-hmm. But it's very difficult, if if possible at all. I mean, you're telling me realistically that that you can you find it super easy to hunt tigers and jaguars, like. Well, he's arrogant. You know what I mean, he's arrogant, so he may have convinced himself that he is perfect at this. You know, he is absolutely perfect. Um, and then when when Rainsford, you know. Zaroff says that for the to have the like the good animal to hunt, it must have courage, cunning, and above all, it must be able to reason. So then Rainsford said, "No animal can reason." And then the general says, "There's one that can." Right. And he's really—I mean, this is really building up to what's coming, and I love the build-up. Um. And that's when Rainsford discovers ways. He says, "You can't mean," and he says, "Why not? Why can't it be human?" Um, right. And he is talking about hunting humans, and that's where they have their difference. Rainsford calls it murder. Zaroff calls it hunting. And it's because of their worldviews. I love his his little spiel about murder. Um, let me find it right I refuse to believe. That, that it's just an outdated About the word. modern and civilized murder. young man? Right, right. So, to, to Zaroff, murder is just an outdated word that belongs to the past. That doesn't separate superior humans to inferior humans. Yeah. So when a superior he basically human, says he he says essentially that's a Puritan word. Yeah. Yeah, like <laughs> which you know me and the Puritans we're buddies. Uh, I mean, he says, I refuse to believe it. So modern and civilized a young man as you seems to harbor romantic ideas about the value of human life. And then he tries to say, surely your experiences in war. So he's trying to say, surely your experiences in war have taken away that. Uh, But it did not for Rainsford. Um, and he calls it cold blooded murder. And, and he says, how droll you are laughing at him. Mm -hmm. You know, um, he calls him naive and, and he expects, you know, a high class man, an educated man to take his views, our view on the world. Yeah. And, and I think what we have today, and I'm not getting too political or anything like that, but I do value human life greatly. Um, and not just the unborn, but I also value, uh, the the aged and i value all human life you know and so this notion that uh if you have this sort of view you're backwards i think is an effect of social darwinism that we see today that's playing itself out in and again a short story from 1920 or 30 something like we see this is very relevant. Yes. Yeah, and, and and that's one reason I love this short story so much. It's so relevant. It has not lost that. And we talked about it earlier. He's not the best writer in the world, but this is a good story. It is a good story. Um, and so he, he dismisses murder as an unpleasant word, you know, 
he says this life is for the strong to be lived by the strong and if needs be taken by the strong the weak of the world were put here to give the strong pleasure i am strong why should i not use my gift if i wish to hunt why should i not i hunt the scum of the earth sailors from tramp ships uh, and then he goes into other things that I'm not going to go too deeply into because of uh, sensitivities. Um, right. But, and, and then he says, and I think this, you'll see this in the story, but he says a thoroughbred horse or hound is worth more than a score of them, referring to sailors and, and all the other classes of people that he, he spills off. Yeah. Uh, and And when he says life is for the strong, he's not just talking about survival of the fitness he's not talking about just physically strong yeah he's talking about intel intellectually strong and physically strong like like the height of human beings yeah uh, and and another thing that gets me and and this is again so connell's highlighting um an arrogant side of this social darwinism to this extreme so when Rainsford said civilized and you shoot down men, his reply is, dear me, what a righteous young man you are. He's being sarcastic. Um, he says, I don't shoot down men. That would be barbarous. Like he, <laughs> like, this guy has no self-awareness. He says he treats these visitors with every consideration. Consider what he did for Rainsford. They had a nice meal. Um, you know, uh, he said they get plenty of good food and exercise. They get into splendid physical condition and you're going to see for yourself tomorrow. Like, my gosh, what a threat. Like, here it comes. But yeah. he is excusing his behavior by saying I acted morally. It's like, I'm not a monster. I give them a head start. Yeah, I give them three days. Like, he even says, um, we'll visit my training school. I teach them how to run from me. Like so, what's what's funny and and ironic in this situation is so he's telling Rainsford all of this stuff. He's telling them everything, and yeah. it's like because Rainsford is still at least on some type of same level with Sarov, he has no clue that he will eventually be the hunted. Like he still thinks he's going to join Zaroff on one of these hunters, something yeah. like that. You know, like like exactly. He has no idea. And so when he's saying these things like um, when he's when he's fighting for the hunted, um, he says, basically, do you give him a choice? He said, I give him an option. If they don't want to play the game, he doesn't have to. But if he doesn't play the game, I turn him over to Ivan. And it says and that so Ivan, Ivan is this. He was a nowder. So he whipped people for the right. He's this giant. I mean, it's it's like uh, Fezzik. I'm right. It's yeah, yeah, yeah. Like this, this guy that's gonna torture you to death and enjoys it. He's very good. He was the. It says he was the nowder to the great white czar, which means he was like, as the official nowder, he is the best at this. He's very good at whipping people and torturing people. And so yeah, you have a choice between being hunted and being beat to death. And so the question is, would you rather fight for your survival or just be tossed over to die? Whereas with with General Zaroff, you have a 50-50 shot. With Ivan, you have no chance. And so, I mean, he, he thinks he's being gracious. And then Rainsford asks the question, and what if they win? 
And then Zaroff smiled and said, to date, I've not lost. So he kills everybody. Um, right. And then he, then here's what I find is that while he's supposed to be this alpha male who is the ultimate survivor, he still has to use dogs. Right. But see, this is him being a hunter. Yeah. So in the hunting game, the advantage always goes to the hunter. Mm-hmm. So even when you're hunting deer or jaguars, you have guns, you yeah. have hounds, you have you can rest whenever you want to, um, and it, the advantage is always to the hunter. And so, yeah, he can in his mind that's that's just how it goes. The use of dogs is is not unfair. It's just the name of the game. Yeah. So let's jump a little bit ahead. Um, so let's skip to the next morning. Um, Rainsford's heading out into the woods. Uh, so Rainsford, unlike the other people, Rainsford was able to get his mental bearings and understand that the running, just running, doesn't work. Uh, and so he starts making fake trails throughout all the woods. Um, and then eventually he climbs into a tree. Uh, and so one of the things I wanted to bring up was he said, I've played the fox, now I must play the cat of the fable. I've played the fox, now I must play the cat of the fable. And so the, the fox and the cat... Um, is attributed to, in some ways to Aesop, his fables. Um, but it's actually a common one in both Eastern and Western uh, traditions. Uh, but basically what you have is the fox is like this trickster who, I mean, that's where you get the phrase, how do you outfox, uh, you know, you have to outfox people. You have to trick them. You have to do better. Um so the fox has many ways of getting around things, but the cat only has one way. So the fox makes all these fake trails and stuff, but then the cat climbs the tree, hides. Um, think like cat burglar. They come in sneaky. That's their mode. Their mode is not to set like home alone traps all around the house for you to get caught in so they can steal your stuff. Uh, and <laughs> that would be a fox burglar. Um, but a cat burglar comes in quietly. That's his way. And so uh, this fox and the cat thing uh, is just a pretty thing you see, a pretty common thing you see in literature. It's even in like Pinocchio. You have the fox and the cat that's in the Pinocchio stories. And it's the same thing. They're, um, they're cunning. And so he says, basically, all right, I've done my tricking. Now I need to hide. And so he thinks he's on top now. He's up in the tree. He thinks he's done it. I, I've beat him. And there's no way he can find it. Uh, he says, basically, only the devil himself could follow that complicated trail through the jungle in the dark. But perhaps the general was a devil, which tells you what's coming. Uh, and so that that next part that gets me uh, is when the general is walking through the woods. He finds the exact spot where Rainsford is just above him in the trees. And he smiles and turns away and walks. Uh, and that's where you have Rainsford saying, basically, oh, my gosh, the Cossack is the cat. I'm the mouse. This guy knows what he's doing, and like a cat and a mouse, we talked about it on the phone. Like a cat and a mouse, what does a what does a cat do with a mouse? Plays plays, plays with, with it. it. He's playing with him, uh, and so he's he's bound and determined to not lose his nerve. 
Um, so the cat was coming along to play with the mouse. And I love that part. Um, and then what, what happens after that? He starts getting into the traps. Is that what he does next? Right, yeah. So the benefit that Rainsford has is he at least understands the hunter. And so all these other sailors, they just run for their life, right? Yeah. And they're easily tracked. And so, Which, let's be honest, tries- I'll, I would run for my life. That that's a question that we'll get uh, later. Is, is will you survive? And so, <laughs> no. <laughs> but so at least he understands, and so he can do this elaborate stuff like like trying to throw him off of the trail, but he fails. Um, and so it's like you know, flight or fight. So he he tried to flee in his own way, and so now he his only resort left is to fight, yeah. is to lay traps. Yeah, yeah. And so he does that Malay man catcher, uh, which I think is a pretty funny name for a, that sounds like an older woman (laughs) who's been lonely for a few years. Oh, she's just, she's just a Malay man catcher. Um, and, and that's where he's really having respect for Rainsford because he said, I too have hunted in Malacca. Um, you're proving interesting notice. So, um, if he's proven interesting, that means that at least in my view, that Zaroff is not executing his his side perfectly. Hold on one second. Right. He's not. Sorry for that background noise. I had a phone go off. But, but yeah, so he's saying, so I'm he's, interested again. He's entertained right now. I mean, this is the thrill of the hunt, right? So he this isn't perfect. Like, he can't hunt Rainsford perfectly. Yeah, and he got caught and in the so, trap. Right. So, and so one of the traps, right? Yeah, it, it, he injures him, and and Zaroff just says, "Good job with your traps." I've got to go. You I got to go dress this I'm wound. Dress yeah, my wound. Exactly. Uh, but I'll be. I'll back. be, right I'll be back. back. I got to just fix <laughs> yeah. this. Uh, and so he hurts his shoulder, and um, and now it says it was flight. Now, so after he's done this fight, he's like, "I got to get out of here." Um. And see, this is where I would mess up. It says that in, insects bit him savagely. That's where I give up my life. Like, <laughs> I'm done. I quit. There's mosquitoes. Just take me. But then, it's so funny, because the other day I saw a meme that says, um, basically, of all the cartoons and movies we watched back in the 90s, you would think that quicksand would be a much bigger problem. Because because yeah. every... <laughs> you always, you always, always had quicksand. So, like, man, I'm not even kidding. I went and visited the... Uh, it's called the Natchez Indian Village, where you visit the uh, a park for the, the Natchez tribe of Native Americans. And there is quicksand there. And I was terrified to walk anywhere in the entire place because I thought... I'm going to sink in quicksand just like in all those movies I've seen. Uh, And so in this, they add in quicksand, which made me very happy uh, because that's one of those common, you know, traps growing up that you never really see ever. No. (laughs) Uh, And I find that hilarious that he's in, he's in quicksand. But um, if we skip ahead, two things, he said, uh, Rainsford knew he could do one of two things. He could stay where he was and wait and that was suicide. So he's fleeing the dogs. Um, that's just postponing the inevitable. And he stood there for a minute, but then uh, he heard the hounds drawing nearer and nearer. Um, he climbed a tree 
And then basically he knew that any minute now, Zaroff would be there. Um, and I think, did he kill one of them? With yeah, some so other kind of trap? Dogs. Yeah, so with another trap. Yeah. yeah, so he killed the dog. Um, and, and that's another thing that, that rings, or that Zaroff was actually pretty put out by the loss of one of his best hounds, more so than more so the than Ivan that he's been hunting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or more even so than Ivan, and right. Ivan, who lives with him. So he's he's upset, like, dang it, I got to get a new dog. Uh, that was a good dog, you know, that kind of thing. So uh, he, he was he was upset about that. Um, uh, let's see, it says that he shinned excitedly up a tree and looked back. His pursuers had stopped, but the hope was that in Rainsford's brain when he had climbed died for he saw in the shallow valley that general zarf was still on his feet but ivan was not so the knife killed ivan uh and so his reaction to the dog is much different than ivan's he's like dang it i gotta get a new dog oh ivan died oh well so so rainsford did more than anybody else before him by killing half of the population on the island yes he did he he did that uh and it says the general um reached the place by the sea uh for some minutes he stood regarding the blue green expanse of water which is one of those things in short stories i've never quite understood why we have to be so descriptive but anyway um he sat down took a drink of brandy and then lit his cigarette and hummed hummed something from madam butterfly why the madam butterfly why that applies (laughs) but anyway um so he had a good dinner uh in his hall and that's where you find out that um, basically Rainsford is now the cat and that Zaroff is the mouse because Rainsford has slipped off uh, and, and yeah, hidden. Right. And so I love that this is just a little note, but Zaroff goes and starts reading Marcus Aurelius. Well, and this is also... so. General Zaroff, because this is at the point where he thought he lost Rainsford. Like, yeah, he he thinks he's dead or you know in a sinking sand, or he tossed himself over the water in just a last attempt suicide, kind of like a relief. Just I'm gonna die anyway. Let me just kill myself or disappear. Yeah. And so General Zaroff basically says of of the the person that gave him the most challenging by far. He said, "Oh well." Yeah, <laughs> like oh well, but then I think it's funny. I think bad. it's funny though that the social Darwinist now has to face that he is indeed the hunted. Uh, because uh, spoiler alert, if you've never read it, should we tell this part? We have to tell this part. We'll, we'll tell this part. So spoiler, spoiler alert. alert: if you don't want to know what happens, turn that thing off, um, or skip a few uh, seconds ahead or something. But. Um, while he's having his dinner and reading his book by a, a Roman, uh, while he's doing that, Rainsford is hidden in the room. Uh, General Zaroff goes to head to bed. Uh, and then he says, get ready in a low horse voice. I love that. Get ready, General Zaroff. I'm thinking <laughs> Batman, so Christian Bale. <laughs> get ready, General Zaroff. Uh, get ready, General Zaroff. And then the general made his deepest bow. So there's some humility in that. Right. I see. Splendid. One of us is to furnish a repast for the hounds. The other will sleep in this very excellent bed. On guard, Rainsford. And then he had never slept in a better bed, Rainsford decided. That's a great ending. 
It is a it's great abrupt. Ending. So, so he just shows up after I guess tossing himself over the cliff into the ocean, and then managing somehow Swam to back. reach the castle. Right, mm-hmm. and so. He just hides behind the curtain. I don't know really what he does. I love you. The, get, the you get so much detail in the build up to I hunt humans. So we know that he hummed something from Madam Butterfly, yeah. but all of a sudden <laughs> it's just over. Rainsford just shows up. It's like it's like Connell said, "Crap, this is about to become a novel. Um, let's just end this thing right now." Uh, so he just stops it. But but I love this in it. Yes. So they they do like this kind of sword fight, I guess, and so that's what's implied. It's right. It's the 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 you know. Rainsford is fighting the boss at the end of the video game. Like it's just just one on one sword fight, and the last line says one of us, you know, will will die and one of us will sleep on this bed. And then he had never slept in a better bed. Rainsford decided so. The Rainsford wins. Yeah, Rainsford sleeps on the bed. That's what you get. So let me ask you this: Does Rainsford then become the hunter, or does he do something different? He does something Good. different. That's what I was looking for. <laughs> because this, so he had a similar philosophy at the very beginning. Rainsford did to Zaroff, the hunter and the huntee. Yeah. But it changes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it has to change through what he's experienced. And I like to think, and of course, this is just conjecture, but I like to think that at that point, Rainsford would have taken the island and would have made it a haven for people who had wrecked. Uh, right. You know, sort of a hospital, if you will, a place where they can get comfort and not fear. Um, and so instead of it being pessimistic, it changed to optimism. Right. It, it's no longer ship trip. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so that's the most dangerous game. I, I love the title itself because really it can have two meanings. One, the game itself that you're hunting someone with equal intelligence and reason as you. Like the the event of the yes. game. And then you have the animal. Yes, game, the actual. Like um, what would you call it? Object you are hunting, prey, the prey. Yeah, uh, is is very dangerous. So that's our anything else on most dangerous game. So in ninth grade, when I read it, one of our assignments was to fill in the gaps of the end. And so what I did, and so I, I always like when. It doesn't end like you want it to. So, obviously, it ends with Rainsford winning. And so, I kind of filled in their sword fight. But at the end, I feel like if Rainsford had a choice, if he had the sword to Zaroff's neck, he wouldn't kill Zaroff. So, you want him to leave Zaroff alive. So, here's what I Zaroff becomes Ivan. I have him leaving Zaroff alive and then putting him into one of those cellar prisons or whatever that he kept all his is human hunties in and so rainsford goes to sleep he wakes up and zaroff has disappeared that would stink so he's escaped the cell he is he escapes the cell and then he sees this ship approaching him and then eventually when the ship gets to the island rainsford is arrested because zaroff sent a telegram to the mainland saying this is a guy that has been killing all of the sailors that have been getting and on the And then island. Rainsford gets his one phone call and he called Zaroff and he says, 
I have a very particular set of skills. And <laughs> <laughs> I will find you and I will kill you. Um, now, that would be something. I was sitting there thinking when you said he threw him into the prisons below in the cellar that maybe he would get him really drunk and he would take him to the, the furthest back part of that cellar and just start building blocks up. And so back to cask, <laughs> keeping them, them, giving them some. Yeah, tying it back to Poe. Uh, so that's the most dangerous game, uh, and we hope that we didn't bore you with that. We hope that maybe that pushed you to want to read this very short story. But now we want to move to our final segment, the least dangerous game, is what we're calling this, uh, and we will do this from time to time. But the least dangerous game is essentially we're going to be guessing what book we're talking about. By giving three clues. I think there's a, a game show like this. I just can't remember what it's called. Um, but uh, I'm coming up with mine right now. So if you want to. Okay. So, so I've got a couple okay. of them. So do you want me to go ahead yeah, and start? Yeah. Um, winter. Winter. Beavers. <laughs> All right, I think I already got this. It's okay. the line with a witch in the wardrobe. Uh, yes, it is. The last word was delight. Delight. Oh, Turkish delight. Um, so here's my first one. You ready? Yeah. A cane, coins, and a curmudgeon. What is a curmudgeon? Uh, it's basically, how do I? Is that Christmas Carol? Yeah, it is. <laughs> a Scrooge. Old, grumpy grumpy old, man. old man. Um, a killjoy, pretty much. All right, so go yes. ahead. Okay. Potion, murder, duality. Oh my gosh. Potion, murder, duality. Is that, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Yes. <laughs> Got it. All right. Now I'm having to come up with mine now. Um, let me let me think. Hold on. I'm turning around and looking. Okay. A horse. A knight. And windmills. Oh, gosh. Um, Don, Don Quixote. Quixote de la Mancha. Yes. That's. Oh, my gosh. I love that so much. That's a good one. We would have to do like four shows on that. Yeah, that's super long. long. All right. Parties. Mm-hmm. Green. Okay. Swimming pool. Parties green swimming pool. <laughs> Parties green swimming pool. Fast cars. Hold on. Is this Gatsby? Is this, is this Gatsby? Okay. Yes, it is. <laughs> I was like, what? Okay. All right. Let me try to. Um, let me try to get. Okay. An attic. A crazy old man. And. Water portals. Oh. Magician's the magician's nephew. nephew. <laughs> I'm so glad you got that. Well, water portal. Water portals gave it away, didn't it? <laughs> By the way, is All that right. not the coolest part of that book? It it's is. like jumping into the pipes on Mario. Uh, <laughs> was that our last one? 
Um, I have. Oh more, no! Keep going! Can, keep going! Okay, so rabbits, fat, shotgun. Rabbits, fat, shotgun. I have no, <laughs> no clue. The only thing I can think of with rabbits is is Alice in Wonderland, but that's nope. not it. Um, this sounds like something a Hemingway or a Jack London. Uh. What is it? Um, of Mice and Oh, Man. my goodness. Okay. It's been too long since I read that anyway, and I'll be perfectly honest. When I read it in high school, and had to do a little essay on it. Cliff notes all day. Yeah. Um, all right. <laughs> you got any other ones? So it's 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 just me and you now. So pigs. And Animal Farm? Uh, yeah. <laughs> all it took was pigs. Pigs it? is all it took for Animal Farm. Equality was my last Equality? One. Well, that would be a fun one. I'll give you two words. Big Brother. Yeah. 1984 by George Orwell. All right. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up the first. Well, oh, you I got, got, I got Sorry. One more. Yeah, go ahead. This is going to be a hard one. Oh, joy. James. And Peach. Peach. <laughs> James and the Giant. James and the Giant Peach. Which, by the way, I like the book. I'll be perfectly honest. The movie. This is the only time. The only time you'll ever hear me say this. I like the movie more than the book. Really? I did. I loved the movie. I loved everything that went into the movie. I mean, think about how much they had to shape those things to make that movie work. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, plus, it's in that Tim Burton. Yeah, that's that's yeah. another reason I like it. I like weird Tim Burton movies anyway. Well, you got anything else on this one? All right. Well, that is the first episode of Building a Grounds. Po- Building a Grounds. There it is again. Oh, books and grounds. People, you will hear Building and Grounds over and over. I work at a church. That's a committee we have, and I can't get it out of my head. Let's try that again. This has been the Books and Grounds podcast. Uh, thank you for joining us, and we will see you next time. <laughs>